I am Maria Dowdy, President and CEO of the Chicago Network, Chicagoland's premier women's senior executive organization. Join me to hear inspirational leadership journeys as our members share her stories and how they empower women to lead. On today's episode of TCN Talks, I'm in conversation with Dr. Stephanie Pace Marshall, founding president and president emerita of the Illinois Mathematics and Science Academy, the nation's first three-year public residential institution for high school-aged students academically talented in science, mathematics, and technology. Stephanie is also the founding president of the National Consortium for Specialized Secondary Schools in Mathematics, Science, and Technology. And I, there, Stephanie's got a, a lots of other parts. Parts of her of her of her of her bio, which we will talk about, but we are so delighted to have you on today's podcast. Thank you so much Thank for you. joining me. Delighted to be here. So, um, we're just gonna I talk about you, and I mean, <laughs> I have done my research, as you know, that I, I I'm <clears throat> very good about that. Um, you're a pioneer. You're an author, educator, innovator, researcher, advisor, inspirational speaker, civic leader, global leader. I mean, I could literally go on and on and on. You have had the most extraordinary, extraordinary career in life. Um, so I guess I want to start at the very, very beginning when we talk about your personal journey. And I want to start from Stephanie grew up in New York. Let's start from um, just your childhood. I know uh, that you uh, had a brother. You have a brother or had a brother. Had a brother. Um, and <clears throat> you grew up in New York. So let's start from there. And I want to know about kind of what was young Stephanie like? Okay. Uh, I grew up uh, in the Bronx um, and moved to, we moved to Long Island as many families in New York did to have their children experience the suburbs and get out of the city. So when I was eight years old, we moved to a town called East Meadow in Long Island. So I had both the growing up in the city, going to art museums, going to concerts, all the things my mother would take my brother and I to, and then we moved to the suburbs, and that was a very different kind of environment. You talk about yourself being a child of the center. I do. And I love that imagery. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? Like why why do you define yourself that way? I think it goes back to a little bit about your parents. It does, but it's it's more um uh the fact that I have always seen interrelationships, interdependencies and connections. And in this center, I could weave as a child, and I still do. So I gravitate to um, putting things in a, in a crucible, let's call it a center, and then seeing how they connect. Because the center is usually where the essence lies. The center is usually where the real story lies. The center is where uh, you can illuminate what is unseen when it's not in the center. And I am always one looking for what do I see that is not being named? What do I hear that is not being heard by most people? For me, most of that resides in the center. So a center has been the place of um, congruence, consonance, resonance, where things come together and I can weave them. 
Tell me about your parents, a little bit about your parents. Uh, my, um, uh, my mom was a singer. She and her two sisters were part of a group called the Three Little Girls in Blue. And apparently they were really terrific and they got a, a contract for Vegas. And my grandmother said, absolutely not. <laughs> so that was the end of that. Um, I'll come back to my mom because she was so influential in me. I call her, I call myself uh, the child of a child whisperer. So I refer to her as the child whisperer, and I'd like to come back and un unpack that. Um, um, she had an eighth grade education when she came to this country. Her parents were born in England. Um, then they moved to Canada, and then she they moved to, to the United States, obviously, New York. Um, and she, my dad, he went to NYU. Uh, he was part of the Manhattan Project, so he was a nuclear mechanical engineer. And there were times that when my brother and I were very young, um, he was in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. I mean, you know, the history of the I it's it's interesting to be born in 1945. I'm giving my age away, of course, um, because there's so much history that is interwoven with your own personal story, and we cannot forget that. I mean, when people tell their tell their stories, they have to situate them in the time in which they were born and raised and became themselves or started becoming themselves because it influenced you in ways you don't even discern because it's all around you. Um, but that was a huge impact. I think he was I think he was very influenced by that you know, he was classified information. he's it was very, it's a, it was a different kind of life. He led partly a secret life and then that our life. Um, how temporal, I mean, like as we're talking about this, the movie, I think the Oppenheimer movie comes out tomorrow. It's coming, yes, <clears throat> yes, yes, yes. Um, so I'll be really curious to mm -hmm. talk to you. Yeah, um, I, I suspect you'll end up see seeing that. it. Mm -hmm. And I I would love to mm -hmm. have a separate conversation mm -hmm. with you offline about what you think about that. Um, it kind of unusual too, right? I mean, you probably, I mean, being a nuclear physicist at that time. Well, he was a nuclear mechanical mechanic, engineer. I mean, that, that, nuclear, yeah. I mean, really that's, a, I'm probably like a handful of people at the time. Yeah, so it's a well, very interesting. It was a massive national effort though. Yeah. You know, so there were a lot of people, but. Course, and how did they meet? Do you know how they met? I'm curious. I don't. Ah, I don't. All, the only part of the story I know is that she was engaged to someone else. And when she told my father, he started to cry uncharacteristically and said, I always thought you would marry me. And that was that she broke up with Victor and that she married him. Oh, I love that Yeah, story. so it was one of those. Then that's the only part of the story I know. <laughs> I don't know anything about their life before or, yeah, just that I knew they were very much in love with one another. Uh, so was, what did what did you what was your what were your hobbies when you were young? What I mean, between having your mother who is a performing arts person and then ultimately being an educator and your dad a scientist, I can only imagine kind of what your hobbies were, but what did you like to do? I never thought of it as having hobbies. My I and I have written about this in in my memoir in terms of how you know what were the roots of me becoming me? Um, and my mother had a penchant for 
Oriental, anything Oriental, Asian. And so the wallpaper in our apartment in New York was bright red, but enormous flowers. And she would wake us up in the morning. My brother was two and a half years younger for us to attend what I started calling mommy's wallpaper school. (laughs) And it was every day and we had to be on time and she could teach everything with flowers. These huge flowers on the wall. So I learned it was such a joyful experience and I credit that with this is what learning is. Even though I called it Mommy's Wallpaper School, it wasn't school, as I then experienced later. But it really, uh, it started it 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 started seeping into my psyche. Is this is I, this is how you connect to learning? So I just couldn't wait to wake up and go to Mommy's Wallpaper School, and I I thought the flowers were my friends. And she said, yes, they are, but they're also your teachers. Remember, the flowers are your teachers. So fast forward when I start examining the science of living systems and ecosystems and saying we have to design human systems to reflect the science of living systems, flowers are my friends. I mean, it wasn't a stretch. So little in my life was a stretch for me as I see the roots that were planted and watered with such fidelity as I was growing up. How beautiful. How beautiful that you can reflect back and see oh. the connection and the roots and, and the start. She was, and I and I remember, now I'm fast forwarding that, you know, I, I intended um, uh, to be um, a surgeon and a theologian. And so I went. Nice combination. That was a combination. (laughs) Healing body, mind, and soul, right? Uh, Because I was a youth minister in our our church growing up, uh, like seventh and eighth grade. And uh, um, so I, I went to a college that had both of those as majors. And then, then my father died and I came home. My mother said, but you need to come home. Your brother's heart is broken, and we need you. And so I left that college, which was Muhlenberg College, which was I was pre-theo and pre-med, and came came back home. And Muhlenberg, actually, it's funny because um, they've got a great performing Fantas- arts and yeah, they other do. Programs. Yeah, they do. But yeah. this was 1963 that I went there. Yeah, uh, and then I came back and, and went to City College of, of New York. Um, but those the roots that that she uh, planted as a as a teacher. Uh, so when I switched majors and was starting student teaching, I went to see her. Fast forward after my dad died, I told you she only had an eighth grade education, but she put herself using his mechanical engineering books. She studied for the GED. She didn't even have a high school diploma. She studied for the GED went to college, one master's degree, two master's degree, and started teaching. And and simultaneously, I went to see her teach. And I'm student teaching, and she's teaching autistic, schizophrenic children. And when I first came to her school, um, the, very, the very first time, um, and knocked on the door, or rang the bell, whatever it was, they said, can we help you? Yes, I'm here to see my mother. Well, who is your mother? And I named Ann Pace. 
uh, oh, we don't, we call her the miracle worker. I called her my mother. So I went to witness, and she had a child, as I said, autistic schizophrenic, who was fidgeting all over. She's sitting with this child, and he's just moving, he's not paying attention. And I watch her put her hands on either side of his face and start to caress his face, look him directly in the eye, and talk in very quiet, very quietly, but just staring at him as she's rubbing his face or caressing his face. And I would, and I watched him, and he would pay attention. And I sat there saying, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to bring children to life. And hence the child was you're the dot the child of a child whisperer. The child of a child whisperer. How long did she teach? My mother? Um not not too long. I, not too long. I, you know, I don't even know. Yeah. Probably 10 years or so. And how? Wh- d- when did she pass? Like, well, I'm trying to figure out when she passed and what 96. she was able to. Oh, so she saw you and the work oh, that yeah. you had she done. Oh, yeah. She saw me get my PhD. She saw oh. me at IMSA. Yeah, she did. I and she always had a prescient, a prescience about me. Yeah, she said to me, Mandy, you know, when I was little, I read, she said, kept things that she wrote about me which was such a gift as I was going through lots of, you know, photographs, but I would have her written things. And she told a story of watching me on the playground. And and she said the children always ran to her, but that was not unusual. She said what was unusual is that so did their mothers because they wanted their children to play with me. And then she wrote a strange feeling came over me that she will ne- Stephanie will never belong to me she will only belong to the world and I hold that as what does that what does that mean and I do want to come back to this um, idea of story like storytelling because you are a storyteller but um, but leaving notes and messages to your children and your grandchildren because I just think mm-hmm. you know having read the letter that you wrote to your grandchildren back in 2006. And when you read that and reread your, your 10, basically I call it pieces of advice. Um, oh, my. <laughs> oh my gosh, Stephanie, they are so relevant today as probably as relevant as they were in 2006. So I, w- I want to yeah. talk about that a little bit. In well, our and conversation. it's interesting you say that because, you know, I helped create, um, uh, a high school in Kenya that I'm still very connected to and created an endowment to make sure it, it stays. And they had asked me about a couple of months ago to give a commencement address and to give advice to the graduates. And I said, I, I don't do that. I don't give advice because I have no idea what you need to do. I have no idea what your life is. I have no idea. But I will give you I'll, I'll share things I think you might want to think about, and we'll call it unadvice. I'll give you unadvice. And I went back to that, what I wrote to my grandchildren. I said some of those things, but then I added. And I got a video back from them. Apparently, the children who are, you know, graduating from high school started talking about the unadvice. And they made videos of which one of those attributions they wanted to live into. And it was 
I, I mean, I sat there weeping, thinking, how fortunate am I? Oh, how beautiful. It was really, and this, I oh remember this gosh. one young man, and, and they called me grandma. I mean, which is also lovely. And he's standing there saying, be the light. I want to be the light. Well, what if everybody in the world had just a smidgen of that? What's one thing I could do? Be the light. When you step into a room, be the light. I love it. No, I just, I, I so, that's how beautiful. How special. So it was really, it was a great gift. But then when I heard him, I go back to, you will never belong to me. I mean, I can trace. One of the gifts of writing a memoir is the threads that I am now weaving together. So, and living systems. Because it really a is living system. It is. It's yeah. all. It all is interconnected. Yeah. Without question, it's all interconnected. There, there's a poem that when it was first sent to me after my husband died, um, a friend of mine sent it to me, and um, I read it and said, "Not possible." It was by William Stafford, and it was called Assurance. And there was one line that was like a, like a dagger, not in a bad way, but just it just it pierced, pierced you, yeah. pierced. And it was, you were aimed from birth. You will never be alone. And I read that over and over and over. And I said, not possible. And then I spoke to a, a colleague of mine, a friend who's been a dear friend, Margaret Wheatley, who, with whom I was introduced at Living Systems in 1991 when I read her book. Uh, and I said, that's not possible. And she said, why do you deny who you are? And that was another dagger. But I have, in, as I keep writing and going back and weaving, I, I can, I can, it's not making an argument. I can, I am more at peace with the concept of being aimed from birth. It's not, it's not a prediction. It's not a, it's, it's a, and it's not you, it will happen. It's none of that. It's the forces in your life, when you act out of your essence, they begin to weave themselves. And you begin to see that, of course, why are you surprised you're doing X? Why are you surprised you're doing Y? I used to be surprised. How did I wind up here? Now I can, I can begin to weave and say, that's why. I am in such agreement with you. I mean, I feel that, oh, completely, yeah. completely. Okay. And I think part of it is... Um, being comfortable with the premise that that y you have a purpose and you were placed on you know in this world for a purpose and you may not understand the purpose yeah. at all times but um, to be comfortable with the fact that like I know for sure I'm sitting in this chair for a reason for I know reason, and I know yeah. and I can tell you how I got here because I okay. have done that You've that journey back. yeah I yeah. have gone back yeah. Um, but I think um, what I love about you, and I, I've seen you do this uh, to, for me, but I've also seen you do this to others, is that you um, extract kind of this goodness in people and these characteristics, you identify characteristics in people that they may not necessarily see or believe in themselves. And it's when you were just sharing what your friend said to you, it kind of hit me as, Okay, that's so funny coming um, 
her saying that about you because you are the master <laughs> of of really helping people think about the goodness that they bring uh, to the table uh, and 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 having being c- confident and inspirational to those people. So it doesn't surprise me that these kids from Kenya um, felt that way because you make everybody feel that way. Well, you're very kind, but it's hard to it's hard to not say. Well, who are you to be aimed from birth? Who are you to be? You know, you're not that great. I mean, that's the voice in your head, right? Until you keep going back to say, how much more, inform- how much more uh, affirmation about certain things do you need? What is? Why is it so hard for uh, us? In this case, me. But I think it's hard for many of us to accept the gifts that other people see. Why is that so hard? Yeah. And so I'm getting closer to that. Uh, I don't see it as born with a purpose. I see uh, a, an aimed as a, as a direction, as, a, as maybe a pre-proclivity. Uh, um, so we can, we can manifest things in a multiplicity of ways. But if there's an essence then, something that's, that's the invisible that calls us, that stops us all the time, the same kind of thing that we're attracted to. That's, that means you, we need to pay attention to where we, we are headed. Yes, I am yeah. in complete agreement. Yeah. Okay, so now we're you're back in New York. I'm going to go back I'm a little back bit. At, we're mm-hmm. back in New York. Um, you're going to the local uh, university, and you end up taking a degree in, was it, what was your was your Degree well, education. Education. I switched from theology and, and medicine to education. And then you went from there. You, I mean, you have so many d- degrees and you have so many. I laughed when I was going through it. I thought, okay, she's got two masters, a PhD. She's got four honorary degrees. I think you have more initials after your name than anyone, anyone. Um, but talk a little bit about um, kind of get, get me back to that part in your life when you were – you graduated. You're doing student graduated teaching. Col- oh yeah. And okay. now we're take us from there. So my first, um, uh, I'll just mention one thing about student teaching because it was in Harlem. So I'm now I'm in Queens College. Muhlenberg College was like a sanctuary, and then you're in the the hard fast, you know, of uh, Muhlenberg College in the city of New York. And I loved. I I, I mean, in the hard fast of Queens College. And um, so my student teaching was in Harlem, and I I saw for the first time um, the damage and the wounding of children who are not only not seen, but are not seen for for anything, but are so invisible that um, the only response that some people see to them is punishment, and so. When I, when I, and it was a, it was a a sixth grade class and they acted out all the time because the teacher literally hated them. You could tell, of course. And so the punishment was walking up eight flights of stairs. This was an eight story building. And I walked with them. Why are you walking with us? Because I'm part of this class. It's like, really? So we'd walk up and down the stairs. When the teacher got sick, they couldn't find anybody to come in. So I took over. And 
uh, it the dynamic changed so dramatically that when I was talking to one student, she looked at me and she said, why do you like us? That's horrible to think that a child would have to ask that question. I don't like you. I love you. And she started crying and I started crying and the class, it's like a light bulb. We, the teacher was out for two weeks. We had, and then she came back and the marching began again. (laughs) So I, I was so reinforced with going back to seeing my mother, listening to children. And then when I started teaching, uh, for seven years, I taught elementary and middle school, and I literally almost lost my job every single year because I was, the, the title of my memoir is Upstream, Knowing I Have Wings. I was upstream every moment because my work was with the children. It wasn't with the rules. It wasn't with the union. It wasn't with the superintendent. It wasn't with anything. And of course, this was a time uh, of great turmoil in the country in the 60s, and um, we took a lot of chances, but I learned a lot of things just by listening to the kids. So I, I was, to your previous point, I was began seeing what most people didn't see and hearing, hearing the, unheard, the unspoken and seeing the unseen. And I was, would just name it. And that's what I worked with with the kids. And they responded. Um, so did you stay? Did you end up getting a permanent position in that part of New York, or were you? No, I I taught. You know, I I, I was I didn't teach in New York. I taught when I moved out to Illinois after I graduated from Queens. Then I moved to Illinois and I taught in Alsip, which was a very um, it was a difficult time because it was a it was a um, it was more de- depressed kind of suppressed and very manufacturing uh, community. Race, I would call it racist. There's no way to make in that in that period of time. Yeah. Um, um, tell me, where did you meet your husband? Uh, Robert, I met in Naperville. He hired me. So you so you hadn't met him by the time when you moved to Illinois. You had met no, him. No, no, you I were didn't still, okay. meet him until I came to Illinois okay. and started working. Yeah, and then as I was a, as I was working as a, a elementary and middle school teacher, um, uh, a company approached me and said, would you become our national strategic planner? Uh, yes. And will you work, in, you know, looking at trying to trying to work with school districts and selecting textbooks? Yes. But I was still teaching. Um, and he was, Bob was then the assistant associate superintendent of curriculum instruction in the Naperville Public School District. I love and it. And we started working together. And so he was truly was, your partner in every respect. He was truly my partner. I love it. So, so tell me, you ended up in Alsop and you were teaching just regular school or had you gone to no, Alsop, administration? I taught fifth school and sixth grade and then I taught middle school. And then um, I went started. I started saying, I think I can do much better for the children if I'm in administration because then it just wouldn't be one classroom. Then I would be responsible for 
the narrative that would happen in the school district. And that's what I committed to. And Kent, let me just talk about this for a second. Like, was this a, was this common for women at that time? I mean, to want to go into administration? There were very many. And certainly when, when I became a superintendent, that was unheard of. Yeah. Were you the there only were, super, female superintendent? At I, the time. Oh my gracious. Yeah. As far as I know, it, it was, that was very rare. Yeah, and pretty, so and that was in Batavia. So I was associate in Naperville, and then I became superintendent in Batavia, simultane, which is how I met Leon Letterman and how the Illinois Math and Science Academy had its roots. I guess did you uh, did you ever? So you left the classroom. Did you? I mean, I, I just think of you as always an educator, regardless of whether you're in the classroom. Oh, was that? Okay, that's right. that's <laughs> so, true. No, so that's I right. think, but you stopped actually classroom teaching. Um, and, and did more of the administration. Tell me, like, when you got into Batavia as a superintendent, what were you most surprised by? Um, the narrative that they told themselves about themselves, that when I would say, uh, what would happen if? What, what about if we did so-and-so? Oh, that we would never, we would never do that. That wouldn't work here. And, um, I I have always I didn't know this, but again, when you're writing a memoir, you you begin to look you name patterns, not just not just recognize them. Um, I lived in or still do uh, live and navigate within four domains of time or realms of time. For now, which is the present, um, mystery, and still possible. And I navigate those seamlessly. Are you realistic on the still possible? I have no idea what realistic means. Possible means possible. Love I it. don't cut off anything because we have no way of knowing. Once you, if if we are, if we understand the interconnectedness of anything that's alive, living, all this are off. Once you put something in motion, we have no idea where it's going to go. That is your true innovative spirit, without question. I so love it. So I don't. Yeah, I mean, I, I have, I have. Uh, well, I've had several really major transformation experiences in my life that have reinforced this. But I started studying living. But in 1987, Bob bought me. A book for Christmas. Usually, I get I got something sparkly, which I prefer. But this was a book. It was called "The Making of a New Science: Chaos." Out of the blue, I opened. I said, "Robert, what is this?" It's a new book by the science editor of the New York Times, and I thought you would be interested in it. Period. Okay, so it's Christmas morning. I start reading. I read it all through the day, and I read it all through the night. And I woke up the next day and said, okay, this changed my life. Wow. 1987, James Gluck, chaos. Because the Newtonian, mechanistic, linear, clockwork universe was completely debunked. That isn't how it works. And so chaos and complexity was looking a fundamentally new narrative about the way the world works and fundamentally new lens through which we see our relationship. And I remember saying, 
Well, if science could change its mind, certainly we can. And I re-entered IMSA with a new lens. And what would it take? So the question for IMSA was what was it what would it take to create a regenerative and life affirming system of learning and schooling that liberates the goodness and genius of every child and ignites and nurtures the power and creativity of the human spirit for the world. Is that still currently the I don't I don't we have know. To go look. I want to go look because well, I mean, beautiful. you know, in our mission. But that was the question I brought. So yeah. it wasn't it wasn't codified in our mission statement. Correct. But it was my question, and I never I stopped using the word how. You know, people say, "Well, how will you do that?" I don't have a clue how to do almost anything, but I do have a sense of conditions that need to be created to make something more likely. And when I you know, have worked with people and talked to people and whoever they are, teachers, it it opens space in the room because no one knows how. You feel dumb when you say, how do you do that? And you don't know. But if you say, well, what what conditions would you have to create to make something more likely? Well, if we did that, okay. Put that if we did that, maybe that, okay. And then you're looking at space that's so much bigger than we have ever imagined, which makes so many more things possible. Yeah, it's how think tanks operate. It's what, oh, think, exactly right. It's how think tanks operate, yeah, Yeah. exactly, which I think is a testament to the importance of diversity in a room, right? Absolutely. And all the things, and you were on that cutting edge way early. So talk about, so you were in Batavia, um, and I know there's a history about uh, ISMA, and I don't, we we don't have to talk about any of that, because I know there was lots of, Oh, the fact that it even came into an existence yes, is a story in right. and of itself. Yes. But tell me how you were, how you were tapped, and then what the considerations that you, that were going on in your mind about whether you were going to come and and help found this organization. Well, you know, so I had been on a narrative. First of all, I started with my mother's school, right, and I began thinking, and so I'm weaving all along, and. Um, I started doing, with the faculty and staff of Batavius, we started doing some really very unusual things. And I became then very connected to the business community and the science community within Batavia and the Fox Valley. And, of course, Fermilab is right there. And um, uh, I I just... um, I was, you became I was a player. Very, you, I became uh, a player. Yeah. That's probably the only woman, but, uh, but I was with these, you know, I became a player. And so um, I was uh, working on the science and math curriculum in Batavia and wanting to uh, reimagine. How would we reimagine? And I thought, well, who on the planet should I begin to roll in the conversation, but the head of Fermilab, whom I did not know. So I made an appointment to him, with him. He went to City College of New York. Wow. So so here I am, and here he is, and he's 15 years older than I, and it was like we knew each other. We, We laughed for three hours, and he finally turned to me and said, um, we need a Bronx High School of Science in Illinois. And I literally raised my hand and said, I'll do it. 
Now, I knew Bronx science, but nobody in Batavia knew Bronx science. Who would know Bronx science? I did because I was a debater in high school. Okay. All right. So at that moment, it was, Leon made a commitment. We need a Bronx science. And I said, I'll do it. I was still in Batavia. And, um, you know, when they say the rest is history, the rest is history. Truly. I didn't know he was the science advisor to Thompson at the time. And so he goes back and tells Jim Thompson that... We need a. We're going to do a science. And the governor said, "I'm on board." And that's any what trepidations or concerns? Um. Well, I would say everything and nothing. You had I to mean, get a faculty. Brand, you had to find a location. It was brand. It was so being a new. residential location was, with huh, kids. Huh, yeah, I mean. And we, so, but the cadre of people that I had been connected to in the Fox Valley, the scientists and the politicians, Denny Hester was there at the time. I mean, I was in such a web. We were all together that um, the idea captivated people. So people just step forward and say, well, I know that person. I can make that happen. And I'll talk to Thompson. It just, just took on a life of its own in a way. And so the superintendent of the school district in Aurora said, I have a building. We've just built. Enrollment didn't materialize. And so this is a brand new high school building. State of Illinois bought it. I became, didn't, I didn't that know became that. became the Illinois Math and Science Academy. It was Aurora High School before they built the, yeah. Oh, they, I, they, they just, so they took it off the tax rolls for the, for the community and gave it to the, to IMSA. And of course, I had worked very hard to take us out of elementary and secondary education. So we were not a K-12 school. We were under the Board of Higher Ed. So when the state superintendent, you know, I'm fast forwarding now, called me one day horror struck and said, we have a problem. So now IMSS is open and we have a problem. And I said, what is it? He said, I don't have test scores for your students. I said, I know. He said, excuse me, what do you mean you know? I said, well, I'm not a school. He said, what? This is the father of the state superintendent now. This was Ted Sanders. Now the state superintendent. And I don't know him. I'm, I am going to call him up. Oh, say, that's I so need to tell you about your father. You, and yes. it's, a, it's a wonderful story. And so I said, we're under higher ed. He said, that's not possible. I said, Ted, go back and read the legislation. Call me back. So 10 minutes later, he called me back. And I'll never forget this day. Silence. How did you do that? <laughs> you were visionary. So you saw it before it needed well, to Well, it was what it was the conditions. What are the conditions that have to be created? Because I people said this is a great school. Great this is a great school. They kept using the S word and I finally stopped a very wealthy donor whom I was courting. And I said, literally. If you use the S word one more time, I'm going to have to smack you. I really said that. And then I thought, are you kidding me what you just said to this guy? (laughs) Anyway, he got all flustered and said, why? And I said, because if if, if I let you use the word school, you went to a high school. You would think you knew whatever we. You think we knew you whatever you you would know. You know whatever. It's limiting. It's yeah. And he said, well, then what are you? I said, we're a laboratory for imagination and inquiry. He called me the next day and said, how much do you need? Yes. (laughs) 
yes. Thank you for the gift. I mean, yeah. it, re- it really is. I mean, you were so ahead of your time when you look at what... But it, I didn't feel like I was. I was just... It was just making sense. I never felt ahead. It's funny because it just was the next... Well, of course, if you think that, then this means. And if you think that, well, then this follows. And if you think that, it just felt so natural to follow the the new narrative that I was living right. and inviting people into. So then it wasn't just me. It was people at IMSA were thinking in that way. Students were thinking in that way. Students were challenging us to think in that way. And that's where students want to be now at Absolutely any institution right. that they're in. And Absolutely. actually, forget about institutions, in any environment that they're yeah. in. That is um, yeah. how you yeah. make that connection yeah. with students. Yeah. I think I think I share with you that my kids were Montessori kids yes. through yes. seventh great, grade, yeah. and it was yeah. um, they didn't. Yeah. That wasn't a school yeah. they went to. It's yeah. not where they went to. They yeah. it was a, more of a laboratory for imagination and learning. But right. um, I think uh, it definitely. I mean, you were ahead of your time in terms of the language. I know you didn't. It doesn't seem like that to you now, but. Um, I mean, that's the nirvana of where, you know, education is when you think about it. Well, I I clearly brought in the the sphere that I was working with at the time, and now I just do it in my writing and other things, you know, the notion of um, moving from a mechanistic linear system, which is how schools are organized, um, into... Life, we, you know, the, what are the dynamics and principles of living system, which is what the power to transform is about. Perfect segue, because that's dynamic, what I want to talk about. Yeah. So the, the, the book was, all right, if I'm going to give people tools, they I have to explain as clearly as possible the principles and dynamics of living systems. And so I created a framework, and that framework um, actually came from the most transformative experience of my life, which was the outback of Australia. Tell us, tell us about this. And that was, I received an invitation in 1997, <clears throat> out of the blue, didn't turn out to be out of the blue, but when I got it, it was out of the blue, saying, come to sacred Aboriginal ground to see if Western leaders and Aboriginal elders could together create a new, more sustainable human story for the new millennium. That was the exact wording. And I read it and thought, what in the name of heaven is this? Aboriginal elders going to the... So I look at... Bob was not home, which I was very glad. So I started Googling where we would go. You know, here's the itinerary. And I became terrified. I mean, literally terrified. I was out of shape. Scorpions, poison snakes, flies that descend and go to every... Or, you know, every opening in your body. It was terrifying. But I knew I had to decide myself. And he would, and because if I showed it to Bob, he'd say, this is insane. You can't, this is insane. You've done dumb things, but this would take the cake. <laughs> Do you have children at this point? I, Do, I don't have, it's only his children. Oh, his yeah. kids. Okay, okay. Yes, yes. He, had, he had been married before. Um, so, but I, so I decided that I, is one of those prescient things. I had to go. I had no idea why. And I understood after I was there um, that it was the new, more sustainable human story for the new millennium. And that was exactly what I had been weaving my entire life within the context of learning. But the learnings, the new learning story 
was the new, more sustainable human story. And of course, 97 was only three years from the new millennium. So I went there, walked song lines, and when I came back, um, the power to transform became the new song line for learning and schooling, and that's what I wrote about. I explained a song line. I explained how elder elders the power of an elder to change a narrative and what happened in Australia. And then I began working in Australia. Um, so my wife, my life became very woven. How long were you there? Just two weeks. But it was, you're sleeping on the ground. There's wolf spiders that are, as, you know, as big as your hand. My, I, the science team in, in uh, at IMSA found the, the ugliest acrylic paperweights they could find with scorpions inside a paperweight. And they'd put it on my coffee table and say, all right, you're going to be seeing these. You better get used to it. Oh, God, they're terrified. I was, I would, I'd come into my office, walk around my coffee table, and sit on the table, not even want to look at these things. But truly, I mean, it was scorpions and snakes. And How many sp- people were with you for this incredible uh, opportunity? About 12. That's it? Oh yeah. Oh, it was okay. So very, how did you? How did you get Margaret this? Wheatley, who's the one who wrote Leadership in the New Science, who I, you know, after I read it overnight, just like I did the first one, and I called her the next day. I didn't know who she was. I got her name from her publisher, got her contact from her publisher to say, I don't know who you are, but I'm coming to Utah. That's exactly how I. Hello, my name is Stephanie. I don't know who you are, but I just read your book, <laughs> and I'm coming to Utah. Great, she said. Huh, we're still very close colleagues. I mean, we still work together. And um, so it was her invitation. And the, the, the transformational thing that happened, it was a real epiphany for me. We actually walked song lines and actually witnessed the elder uh, changing one. Talk about what that is for the people that okay, may not know what a song, song line is. Um, aborig- this, uh, Ab- Pitinjar Aboriginal culture goes back 80,000 years. And they believe that um, their ancestors started below the earth um, telling stories, singing and telling stories. And then when they finally got tired or hungry, they would come up from the earth, but they would continue to sing the songs and in the cadence in which they created them, as they walked the land, and as they did that, they were actually creating the landscape as they walked. So if they were te- if they were singing a song below the earth, um, and there was a watering hole, or there was a tree in a certain day, when they came above the earth and started singing the songs in the cadence, they would come upon a watering hole. They would come upon whatever it was that they had sung beneath the land, they would come wow. to it on. And so there is no word for lost in Pitanjara. So because they could never be lost because they could sing the map into being. And that I held that as a construct to say, okay, I'm going to use a song line, which I deconstructed as a narrative. It's a, it's a story a map because when you walk it in the cadence in which it was created, it creates the land and then it was a landscape. So story, map, and landscape and the power to transform is a new story, a new map, and a new landscape of regenerative and life affirming learning and schooling. That's wow. what this is a story. It's incredible. And it went incredible. and I you know, I originally I wasn't going to use the word songline. 
because it sounded so esoteric, but I was amazed at its resonance. People just get it. And we're and the, one of the questions I began holding is, if there's no word for something, does it exist? If there's no word for lost, can you ever be lost? I still hold that as a question. If there is no word for it, does it exist? And so I'm a, I'm a, I've, I attend to lexicon and language. I'm very careful about my language because it creates narrative. The words we choose and the words we walk creates the story that we walk. And unless we know what it is, we're, we're, um, uh, we have no sense of our own possibilities. Okay, now you've really got me thinking. I'm going to take that one back. So I don't know if I shared with you that my youngest son now um, got an incredible teaching job, teaching at a boarding school in Delaware, and he's teaching religion, theology, and philosophy, and he is the assistant lacrosse coach, and I think he's also teaching, coaching soccer, but um, I'm going to ask him that question. Uh, I'm going to have no him think about it. it. Does, it, does exist? it exist? Yeah, and I'm actually going to even share. I'm going to share the book with him because I think, as an educator, um, <clears throat> I want him to think the way that you're thinking. You know, because you don't want to um, limit yourself in, you in any way. Yeah, I mean, there's no. no reason for the limitations, like you were saying before. Yeah. There's nothing's linear. It doesn't have yeah, to be linear. Exactly. Um, and my question is always, what is possible now? It doesn't mean it will happen. But it doesn't matter, you know. Okay. Um, so, so let's fast forward. You wrote Power to Transform. You're still at IMSA. IMSA. Um, what What's the next big, big, big step? What's the next? You said there were well, two the transformational. Power to Transform came out in 206, and I left. I I stepped down from IMSA in 207. I don't don't retire, but right. I you know I knew that it was time. Um, just like my mother said, move it out into the world, belong to the world. So it it went all over. And I started. I know getting, you're, you're global. So <clears throat> let's talk about that a little bit because yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to share with you because I don't think I've had this conversation with you in the past. I was privileged to attend several of the Clinton. Uh, oh, global the, initiative. Uh huh. I was at. Um, I was everyone that was in Chicago. I had the privilege of attending, and they okay. were truly transformational yeah. for yeah. me. So when I saw that, I was like, "Oh my gosh, I haven't talked to you about that." But let's talk a little bit about what. Well, it, how it was, did you end up in the global space? Yeah, it, it's it, well because it went. Uh, I mean, first of all, when I told the story of the outback, that nobody was in that story. I mean, that was a very unusual. Um, and so I got a contact from a woman in Australia. And then I got a contact from a very unusual family in Cape Town. Um, and I started just connecting to people. They wanted to know how you bring the new, now it was called the new story, how you bring the songline of the new story to life. And it was fascinating in Australia because no one had ever met an Aborigine. And at the time that I got involved, so this is around 207, um, uh, they, were, they were referred to as the stolen generation because they would take, the, the government would take their children uh, because they're clear their, their families couldn't raise them, as the government thought, and they give them to 
white Christian families to race. Wow. And I was And that was still even going on later. Wow. I think it was two two oh eight where the government finally apologized. And I was actually there prior to that. I was uh, so I had been invited. They created an initiative called Learning to Learn, and it was grounded in the power to transform. This was a government initiative. Um, started in Adelaide. And I was I was there and uh, it was a huge crowd and you could then hear a small plane above you and there was and then the crowd got silent and the on the back of the plane these great big what is it that fly banner thing yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it said sorry and my colleague who was you know she turned to me and she said the people have now apologized and nothing will ever be the same that was literally her word and nothing will ever be the same and like a year or two later the government actually issued a formal apology to the aborigines for taking their children but oh. it was that was a stunning moment but she she came very far in you know i remember the headline i didn't save this article i don't know why or either i did or I, I can't find it, or I didn't save it. Um, U.S. educator criticizes Australian education. Well, I mean, of course I was. I was criticizing every education that was not regenerative and life-affirming, right. that was not grounded in the principles of living systems, and was not bringing students alive. You know, living systems thrive. Healthy living systems thrive and flourish. Those garden. are not words that we use in education. Yeah. Do you have a big garden? I have to ask you. The what? Do you have a big garden? Uh, Do you I like to garden? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Um, I, I had to. I had to throw that in. Um, so you you stepped out. Let's talk about how did you end up in working in in England and or at least being connected to the Royal Academy of Education, whatever. Yeah, the, I can't remember people, exactly you know, the name. More people that I would just meet. I don't want to say just along the way. People that gravitated to the. To the the the, narr- the new story, I mean, I just think there's a yearning. We know when something is toxic for who we are. We know when we don't know how to get out of it, but we know that when we're in it, we're not healthy. So there were people that gravitated to this to this. It's not the book; it's the the narrative that that was being offered, which is a narrative for all of us. I when I wasn't making it up, I went to the natural world and simply translated. The science, well, these are the dynamics and principles of living systems relative to identity and nurturing. I translated, you know, what is nurturing in living systems? What is nurturing in schooling systems? What is, I just made a one-to-one, which took an enormous amount of time because I had to be, I had to have fidelity to the science because I was going to have science people read it to say, well, what is she doing? She's using a metaphor. No, no, no. This is not real science. So I wanted to make sure I was true. Um, and then how that translates, what does that mean for the design of human systems? Uh, and so um, uh, no, I lost my train of thought. Um, it gravitated to a lot of people who were looking for something to hold on to because they knew that the current system and design was so toxic. Was broken. And it gave them a, yeah. a place. It was broken. I mean, some, and so in some cases, I spent time in Australia. I spent a lot of time. I still do in Kenya. 
and in Cape Town. So talk about um, how did you end up? How did people Kenya were, people just contacted me? I mean the the uh, the the people in in Cape Town were or just um, they read it, call, uh, called me and and flew in and I met them in the Fry Foundation offices, and they said, you know, we we want to we'd like to work with you. Will you come talk with us? And and they had a, they showed me what they had done, and it was really one of those mind-boggling things. They were, <clears throat> they had an enormous home, and uh, the ceilings were very, very high, and they had white poster paper covering the ceilings with the language of the pap- written all over it. I was, I, I, I did exactly what you did. What is this? It was like this is too too unreal. But it, it That's just, a fan club. It just <laughs> but it said that it it was touching people in a way that it was what they were looking for. I I you know, I it was right time, right place, but it was a yearning and I still think that's you know, that's where it still is. Um and they did amazing things. They made a commitment to, to for STEM education in the rural townships. And so I started working with the university. Um, we got very far. Uh, and then there were riots. And so, you know, it it didn't manifest the way they had hoped. But still, several of the faculty came to IMSA. Um, several of the people I work with came to IMSA. So I, that's what I said before, things were put in motion. And unless they killed them off directly, there, there will still be more than they would have ever had before because it changed the way they thought, you know, it um, shifted their thinking and perspective. Yeah. Um, tell me then, how did the second book come come about? Like, what what? Well, the second you to one was um, uh, I had I uh, I had worked with an architectural firm for a long time who had gravitated to power to transform. And um, that actually makes sense. Yes. That really, really makes sense. Yeah. And so I was working with them on, you know, they were doing the physical design, but I was saying, here's what, you know, this is the translation. Um, And then I got, that's how I got connected to Bruce Mao too, as an architect. Um, uh, But then they wanted uh, a couple of years ago to, to, uh, write a book with a collaborative that would take that would be beyond education and say a- any human system and of course the the principles are exactly applicable so they went they came back to me and so that that book is called seed and spark but it's the root the entire root system is the power to transform you won't see my name i wrote the forward but you won't see my name even though i wrote a significant part of the book you won't see my name in it because it was a collab- collaborative book project yeah, by I, this design firm. Yeah, very, but, very, very. But it makes perfect. The connection yeah. is absolutely and logical. I, still work, I do still some work with designers. Yeah. Um, okay, so you, I, I'm so curious about the answer to this question because um, I honestly, I'm just can't can't think of one thing. Like, what's going to be the one thing? And I don't think there's going to be one thing. But as you sit here today, um, you are probably one of the most intellectually curious humans I've. I've ever met. Um, That's too bad. You haven't met more people. No, you are. You. Oh my oh, gracious! Dear. It's it's extraordinary. But what <laughs> inspires you today? 
Like what's, what is your inspiration? Uh, I have such astonishing faith in our inherent goodness. And so my, you know, I, uh, my commitment now, I mean, I must finish my memoir because that is, you know, I just, it's never finished. Actually, it's upstream knowing I have wings and unfinished memoir, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is true for everybody. But I am, um, you know, years ago, I went to a TED Talk uh, by a a fellow whom I did not know, Giles Dooley. And he was uh, a photojournalist who had lost two arms, uh, two legs and an arm in, in, because he took, he was a journalist looking, taking photography, taking photos in war-torn regions. And he came to Chicago and showed us these astonishing photographs. But he has lost his legs, two legs and one arm. And uh, it, it was, it was sobering. And, and he, he, unusual for TED Talks, he said, does anyone have a question? And there was a young woman in the front row who said, I do. What does it take to take a great photograph? And he said, got really quiet. And he said, it's a great question. My answer is knowing where to point the camera. And I took that as a, that's what I do. That's why I can see unseen and hear unspoken. I have learned where to point the camera and I name it. So when I'm working with groups um, and I'm listening to conversations, uh, I will almost always, depending upon my sense of how the group is what I'm feeling about the group Um, would it be helpful or might it be useful if I named what I hear but you haven't said and I name what I see but you're not seeing would that be helpful I don't go in to say let me suggest I have some things to share with you no 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 would it be helpful if I illuminated some things I'm hearing that you haven't said and I'm seeing that you haven't articulated. And 99% of the time it'll be, you know, people sitting back saying, oh, yeah, that, that would be helpful. And when I do, it's, I mean, sometimes there are tears, sometimes there's confusion, sometimes, I mean, it can be anything but it totally shifts the space, totally shifts, because they all they also knew that, but they didn't know they knew it, or they were afraid to articulate it because it was not a safe space. But I, I am able um, to create not not because I'm trying to design it, but just because it's how what I see now. It is what I hear now, and so I. By naming it, I release them to enter into the same space that they are capable of. And, and miracles can happen. They don't even know it. But just that simple thing. I mean, he, when I heard him say, 
knowing where to point the camera. It's not just because he would, you know, he would point the cam- the, the pictures could be horrible, people in destruction, but there was beauty in the picture. There was something beautiful there. There was something, an expression on a person's face. Whatever you said, how was this possible that in this horrible, devastating picture, you could see something else, but only if you look for it and you point the camera in the space where it's there. And so that's my work now, pointing the camera and naming. I name and I point. I, I, and then I open space. I just think that's so beautiful. And... Um, the fact that you ask permission. Oh, yes. You know, it's not my is, space. It's yeah, theirs. Which is really, really quite beautiful. Um, I wish you could teach people, others, to do that because it would be so – think about I it if we lived our life that way. That might be a way. challenge for the Chicago Network. Yeah. I mean, I think there's this inherent – I think there is an inherent capacity, but it's been so marginalized. It's not measurable. It's not fine. You know, the way we judge and evaluate, measure, monitor success, I, I haven't talked about, I mean, that's that's a whole different, you know, we look for metrics and we look for, you know, um, we have to step back to say, you know, just just leadership. I mean, you've brought extraordinary insights and perspective and a, a very open heart. You open space for the Chicago Network. Thank That's you. been very palpable to me. And I think we could, you know, these are conversations we could be in. People could be sharing these things, learning from one another. Because until we are, until we can uh, begin to discern what is really there but may not be visible, uh, but we have a sense until we invite that 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 sense is just as good as a strategic plan on sometimes, so that we open for people to be more of who they can be. I love that. goodness and genius reside within everyone, but they just don't hold it as possible. So if there's no, you know, it goes back to my question: if there's no word for it, maybe it doesn't exist. So maybe some of the bad words we have, really, <laughs> there's no word for them. But I think, you know, I do think this is a moment, um, a moment for women, because we do have um, it's a, a sense of, uh, we have a capacity for higher levels of sustained vulnerability than, 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 than many people do. I, mean, are, I, I agree I think, with you, but talk a little bit more we, about well, that. Well, just that I think it may be, and I, I hate to, you know, do separate by gender or anything else and bifurcate because that's not useful. But um, leadership is, you know, we talk about leadership. Leadership is first an inside job, you know, and if you if you don't know who you are and how you are because of who you are, then you bring all kinds of potential toxicity into a working environment. Um, and you look at our, I mean, I have I have become, because my brother and I used to study the dictionary. We loved words. And and we would challenge each other. You know, open up a page, okay, and read the definition. Okay, what's that word? Or else read the word and say, okay, what is that? Def-? So I, I, lexicon is really important to me. When, you cannot write new stories with old language. You cannot. So if you're going to change a narrative, it goes back to, you know, 
what's the word? If you're going to change a narrative, you have to use different language. And if you looked at corporate language, even if you looked at school language, it would not be the language that invites and opens possibility and and puts people on a path to growth and, and recognizing and embracing their own good. It doesn't. It measures, it monitors, it tells you when you're wrong. It gives you, I remember parents saying to me the first year, how will my, if you don't do grade point average and you don't do class rank and you don't do this and you don't do that, how will my kid ever get into Harvard? I said, that's not a trivial question. I tell you what, I'm going to talk to the admission team. We are going to bring our standards of significant learning and all the ways we ask kids to um, demonstrate their inquiry and problem-centeredness and what how they solve, blah, blah, blah. And we're going to bring this to all these places, Harvard, Stanford, Yale, all the places you want your kids to go. And I'm going to ask them, if you don't get a, if you don't get a grade and you don't get an AP score and you don't get to this and you don't get to that, but you get this from the student, would you take them in a heartbeat? Look at where we are now. Huh? Well, look at where we are now. With, I mean, you were, again, you were, you were way ahead of everybody on that as well. In a heartbeat. I so, mean, it's crazy. So we all have, we're all living a story. We just don't know what it is. And my work is to point the camera. I love it. Um, okay. I want to talk about the letter to your grandchildren because I oh. just think um, for those of the listeners, um, I highly recommend going on to stephaniepacemarshall.com, which is Stephanie's website. Um Really, it's whoever did your website did a beautiful job. Yeah, it's they did. Really, yeah. I just felt <clears throat> your whole living system. I it just jumped out oh, at me on, so on the great, website. I felt great it. Feedback. Oh, good. I felt great, it. Great. great. Um, but <clears throat> you have um, wonderful insights in that letter. But you have these ten, um, ten basically pieces of advice, and I'm definitely um, simplifying it. Uh, unfairly, but of these 10, and I actually, I am going to read these because I think they're just so crazy, powerful, and so relevant to the current existence of, of our society. But first one is slow down and learn something very well. Second is do everything with the seventh generation in mind. And we'll talk about seventh generation. Uh, third is honor and celebrate life in all its forms. Be gentle with the earth and absorb and embrace the wonder and beauty that surround you. Fourth is be a steward of your gifts, your passions, and your dreams. Five, say yes to belonging and wow, because belonging is now like the key word <laughs> in our lexicon. And you, you again, ahead of your time. <clears throat> Six, Find your own voice, speak your own truth, and choose faith and hope over cynicism. Seven, pay attention and listen for the sacred that lies hidden in the ordinary. Eight, decide what you want your name on. Nine, invite yourself into a life of learning and choose the questions you want to be holding for your life. And ten, remember that contrary to the voices, images, sounds, and messages that surround and bombard you, your life is about your integrity not your position, your voice, not your power, your name, not your title, your calling, not your career, your legacy, not your success. I mean, every one of them is so beautiful, so poignant. Um, of these 10, which one uh, do you 
feel is really important for us as a society today. Oh, gosh. And I know that's a lot to ask because every single one of these is, but um, let me, let me, I'm going to switch it. I'm going to switch the question. Um, which one do you think is the hardest for people to follow? I, I always have to look at them. Okay, I'm going to get remember to say because like, which one do you might, think is the hardest for people to follow? Hardest to follow. Um, find your own voice, speak your own truth, and choose faith and hope over cynicism. And it goes. It goes to the. Attention and listening for the sacred within the ordinary. I mean, they're all connected, so it connects to your name and your and your and your. But it's it's finding your own voice, speaking your own truth. Um, that's a journey, and there is no shortcut. And it's going. It's internally to recognize the voice that is yours, and then to put it. It's all for me now. It's all in service to the needs of the world. It's looking around you to see what needs to be done and doing it. It may not be grand. It doesn't have to be. And it could be right. It's right in front of us. Just do what needs to be done. I don't hold, I don't, I rarely use the word hope anymore. Um, uh, I use the word intention. I use the word, I, there's a, Sometimes I will say, um, you're leading a vowed life. And it is not, it's not religious, but it's, I have made certain commitments and vows now to who I intend to be and who I am choosing to be in the world for this time. Um, and I... I don't think we can get there until we have done some really serious internal work to find out what is it that really calls us? What is it that we really think our name is on? No matter what, we might not even understand why. Why did I go to Australia? I had no idea. But retrospectively, because I learned about song lines and I could tell a new story. It was my story to tell, not my story, but it was my work at this moment in time to tell a new story. And how else could I do it? But go, I had to go back to the original storytellers to learn what a song line was so I could come back and say, we need a new song line for this time. So I think it's really owning your, understanding your own voice and then owning it and putting it to work in the world that is probably the most difficult because there are so many voices that tell us what we cannot do and what is not possible. And the voice that's the essence tells us <clears throat> never put your name, I mean, never do anything that you do not feel your name is on. That's the hardest. You know, as you look back in your life, maybe you've hit this part of your memoirs, is there something that you wish you had done differently or maybe not done at all? Or, um, and I, I, I'm saying this and I know your answer is going to be, well, if 
you know, you, you live in the possible. So there's, you know, your, your different temporal um, planes that you were talking about. So I'm, I'm guessing you're going to say no. Um, but is there anything like when, as you've reflected, have you, have you talked about any of that in your memoirs of something you would have done differently or something that you wish you had taken advantage <clears throat> of that you had not? Um, you know, I'm so, I'm so focused now on the present that there's a part of me that says there's probably a gazillion things at, at different levels of scale, you know, that I wish I had done, that I wish I had not done, or I wish I had done sooner. Um, it's probably more the latter um, although I could think of a gazillion things we do, you know, um, <clears throat> but I don't, um, I don't enter those things now because every every possibility I took advantage of, and every astonishingly every screw up that I did with gl great glory, it brought me to where I am now. Which I think is so important. And, and so I have to accept um, my, you know, where I was, my stupidity along with my gifts to say it's all a part of the package of who we are. And we can't, or we shouldn't, <clears throat> you learn from your mistakes. And I know that I have, but I Honestly, it's not that I can't remember because I haven't made any. It's that I don't remember because they don't seem important anymore. Only what seems important now is recognizing uh, the journey I have taken, the threads that were always, always present. Um, my high school yearbook, you know, people were writing good luck and blah, 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 you know, in yearbooks. I wrote Thelonious Advice to Laertes. <laughs> to thine own self be true, and it must follow that the night the day thou canst not then be false to any man. That's still, when I was, what, 17? To thine own self be true. Aimed from birth, I have been following, now that I see it, I have been following a path, not a career path, I have been following a path that has manifested in a particular career. It could have manifested in another one. I still would have been me. Um, but um, so I, I'm not trying to avoid your question. I'm sure there are countless things, and now you'll have me thinking about them, and I'll call you and say, "I knew when I screwed up in this." Particular <laughs> no, but time. here's but the reason why. Really, you, go ahead. Here's the reason why I think it, your answer is so so powerful. Because I want the people who are listening, who obsess and beat themselves up oh, about yes. all the mistakes that they make and they go back and try to replace scenarios <clears throat> and they do all this. And it is so destructive. Destructive. And I, I, I really did have a feeling you were going to answer that way. I kind of <laughs> set you up knowing you were going to answer that way because <clears throat> it is such a lesson for all of us to learn. And um, yeah. I really hope that, that those who are listening and have that tendency stop 
um, and that they be present. And of course, we learn from our mistakes. Yeah. That's not what I'm yeah. suggesting. But <clears throat> it, it's to be to be living in the past is not living. No, it's not. So, um, so I love, I loved your response <laughs> and I don't want you to think about it another day. Okay. Well, I, I really, I mean, I hope people hold the question of, um, who do we choose to be now when you can change, you can change your story. And I remember a conversation I had with Jesse Jackson many, many years ago and he's, and I was, we were talking about the construct of story. And I said, we live the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. And he said, oh boy, you can take the child out of the ghetto. This is his quote. But you cannot take the ghetto out of the child. And that's the responsibility we have. Because I, everything I do, I filter at some point through the lens of what are the children noticing we do? What are the children hearing that we do? What are, the, are, what are we inviting the children into? What are we not inviting them into? <clears throat> Carl Sagan, when I invited him to IMSA, he gave a brilliant talk on the science. But then he said, dreams are maps. It matters what those visions are. Sometimes they become self-fulfilling prophecies. So fast forward I invited an artist to IMSA who spent a month and she built a dream tunnel, an enormous dream tunnel that we could walk through. But dreams are maps. And how do our children know we believe that? Do we allow them to dream? Can they dream in places called schools? Can they dream in other places? I mean, how do we begin to tap into the astonishing capacity we have for what's possible? And invite it, because the other thing Sagan said is, they are the cartographers of the human future. Our children are the map makers of our future. And if we don't attend to them, we're not attending to the future. Very powerful. Very true. Very, very true. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you one last question before we go into our lightning round of fun questions. <laughs> um, you know, I, I do have to... I want to make sure we touch on this because it's pretty extraordinary, but you have received numerous, numerous awards and recognition for your leadership from the Distinguished Service Award from the U.S. Marine Corps, which is really interesting because I don't know anybody that's gotten that one, uh, to your induction um, as laureate of the Lincoln Academy of Illinois, which is, just for those of you who may not be aware, the state's highest award for achievement that contributes to the betterment of mankind. Um, of all this recognition, of all of your successes, what are you most proud of? Mm-hmm. Uh, probably um, uh, helping to manifest the Illinois Math and Science Academy because of the astonishing work that our children, who are now 40s and so, uh, have 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 done in the world, yeah. Advance the human condition was always our construct, you know, ethical and creative scientific minds that advance the human condition. And when I look at what they have done, that's if I had anything to do with setting that in motion and giving them the freedom to to be who they were, then that's 
They are the greatest gifts. I love it. Love it. Okay. <clears throat> so I've been doing this every podcast, a very fun lightning round. Don't think, don't think too much about this. Um, few questions. Your first job. Oh, my first job. Let's see. I guess it was teaching. Yeah, I guess it first was. job. Like guess, even I, when you were younger. I don't know. I don't think I even had a job when I was little. No teaching. I mean, okay, yeah. sounds good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Most memorable vacation. Oh, it has to be vacation or experience or what? Vacation. Uh, vacation. Um, vacation. Um, Bhutan. Wow. Very. I was fascinated because I went there to see just what is gross national happiness about. <laughs> um, would you climb a mountain or jump out of a plane? Climb a mountain. Uh, what superpower do you, would you want to uh, have? Uh Seeing the invisible, hearing the unheard. <laughs> Last one. What brings you joy? Uh, holding up a mirror and naming what I see in other people. I can assure you that that brings joy to all those who are on the <laughs> receiving end of that because you have been kind enough to say that to me and it's really meant it's so much. So thank you. Um, Stephanie, thank you. From the bottom of my heart, it has just been so wonderful to have this conversation with you. Um, that is all for today's episode of TCN Talks. The Chicago Network thanks you for listening. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show. Please follow us on LinkedIn.